So yeah, I want to be able to participate fully in the legal profession without having to face obstacles that are linked to my color, my gender, uh, my religious belief, or you know, my cultural background. Those are, if anything, those add you know spice to the whole you know bowl. Uh, those are really um, those are strengths. I, I think that anyone can benefit from that cultural diversity and and gender diversity. The, you know, those are different perspectives that come into play and that can make you innovate. That can make you be creative. That can make you be competitive compared to your you know t- to others. So we should be celebrating these things rather than you know using them as excuses to not let people in. It's just shocking that. When you're a non-lawyer sometimes, right, or you're not a lawyer yet, or people don't know you, sometimes you do deal with, um, uh, I guess, certain biases or um, people just assume things of who you are. But whether you're a lawyer or not, at the end of the day, we're all people and everyone deserves respect. I mean, I think it doesn't even matter what your race, religion, culture, ages, like respect is just everyone should respect one another in the ideal world. <laughs> this is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. In terms of the profession and women, I think we still have a long way to go. In terms of the profession and, you know, um, minorities, Indigenous people, and anyone who has a disability, there's a huge way left to go. And... Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we're not making progress and we can't forget that where we came from and the huge progress we've made since 93, but it's been a long time now and we've just made a couple of minor steps. You know, I was, I was called uppity by Mm -hmm. an opposing counsel who said I didn't know my place. Um, Another opposing counsel who was a gentleman uh, called me an idiot once uh in an email and i was like oh my goodness another opposing counsel during the examination for discovery uh said that you know he was going to keep me on a on a short leash and i was like oh my goodness like and i just you know i tried to to maintain my composure and i said you know should you have an objection please state it for the record and you know we can attend chambers to have it adjudicated but I'm not going to, you know, have you answer purpose for, for, you know, this examination is to have your client answer these questions. So it was, it was really, um, I, I, I felt like I was practicing in the 1950s and clients would say things like, oh my goodness, um, uh, I'm going to tell, you know, if a- after a successful result, I had one client said, wow, you know, I, I'm going to tell my, uh, I can't wait to tell my wife that I had a lady lawyer. Oh, okay. Uh, I had a client uh, refuse to um, have me defend them. He was a client of the firm, and uh, I was assigned to his file. And, you know, he refused to uh, have me act as his counsel. The sole reason that I was a woman. This was a couple of years ago. This wasn't 30 years ago. So... I feel lucky to now be practicing back in where there is a certain level of um, decorum and collegiality. I was point blank in the middle of an interview asked, so I hear you have like a daughter or something like that. 
And I was totally thrown off guard because I was like, neither did I disclose that I'm married. Neither did I disclose that I have a child. And I just was so stunned. And I was just like, what does that have to do with my qualifications for this position? And I just flipped the script on the guy. And I did. I said, what does that have to do with anything at this point in time? How does that fill my job description? I was absolutely livid. But like, these are the things that we experience. Um, And nobody really gets to air out their grievances, right? Because especially when you're young, and you're just trying to get your foot in the door, you feel like you can't say anything. Because you know, at the end of the day, our community is so small, people might speak, it might be held against you. Um, You know, I had a judge who was frustrated as heck, pronouncing my name. And at the end of it, just gave up. And just Oh, treated me so poorly during the hearing. I was even the sheriff sitting there were like, Oh, I don't know what to say. And I'm just like, oh, this is I've lost I've lost the hearing already. <laughs> like But what but what you what can you do as a as a younger lawyer, right? And it, you you have to unfortunately take it, right? And and in that case I had to take it. I had no way of, of even standing up for myself, uh, given just the position that, that this judge had. So, you know, and, you know, I've had people at the courthouse, you know, again, say like, oh, I'm surprised, especially when I first came here, that I'm surprised you, you know, don't have an accent and things like that. I, I have a, a great network of friends and the fact that some of them had to work for free for their articling because they couldn't get a position based on their last name back when we were in law school signifies that, you know, there was an issue. I was fortunate because I... My last name does not reveal my, you know, background. And so when I would apply blind, I would, I would be, I I don't like using the term, I would be selected above my friends who'd had visibly um, Indigenous names. Um, But I thought, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to tell him because he'll understand. I mean, I'm pregnant. I hadn't told anybody that I was pregnant. And so I went to him. And I said, you know, I, I am so sorry. I'm going to need an extension on this. I am so sick. Um, and, oh, I still remember the look on his face um, of disappointment. And, and, then I, and then I said to him, I still didn't want to tell him I was pregnant. I just told him I was really sick and, and the, the look of disappointment. So I thought maybe he'll, maybe he'll understand if I tell him that I'm pregnant. And so that's when I told him that I was pregnant and, and he looked at me and he said, well, that's not my fault. And I'll, I'll never forget that. I mean, obviously I've never forgotten it. <laughs> it, was, it was 25 years ago and I've never forgotten the look on his face or how those words made me feel. The second example was, um, I had left practice. I was already um, an owner and a manager of the council network, and I was um, I was uh, had just uh, given birth to my second child, my daughter, and that was an easy pregnancy. And I worked throughout, right up until the day I pushed her out. I was working. I was. I was making calls from the hospital. Like it was. It was ridiculous. Um, and I, and I don't tell you this story to, as a badge of honor at all. This is, in fact, it's quite the, it's quite the opposite. So I, I came back um, from mat leave 
and there was no mat leave because now I'm a business owner. So I'm not an employee. I don't really have a mat leave. So, you know, six weeks, I thought, oh, that's all I can really afford. Um, I, I was sitting in a boardroom table at a law firm, my client, right? Because we were doing a big search for, for them. And um, I remember sitting at the head of the boardroom table and I was the only woman in the room and I was the only racialized woman in the room. And this is not, this was not new. I mean, my entire career, I've sat in uh, a boardroom with only men and have been the only woman and, and certainly the only racialized woman. So I remember going through the meeting and uh, doing a really good job and um, everything went really well. And then right at the end of the meeting, one of the partners who, who knew that I just had a baby um, said to the rest of the group, and can I just say, you know, Samira, didn't you just have a baby? And I said, yes, I did six weeks ago. And he said, well, you are an example to all other women. You've come here and you've um, come back to work so quickly. And we applaud you for that. And they all clapped for me. They all clapped for me and applauded and, and said that I was a role model for other women. And I remember feeling pretty proud of myself. And it wasn't until reflecting on that years later where I realized that I was not a role model at all. In fact, I was doing my gender a disservice by trying to push push through and go back to work so quickly and not giving myself and my body enough time to heal. And, and look, I'm not suggesting that women can certainly go back to work when they want and not go back to work when they want. It, so it, it's not about that choice. It was about how um, the men in that room revered the coming back to work quickly as being something that should be um, applauded. And, and that is the part of the story that I think um, I wanted to share. When I was uh, looking for articles, I had a random interview and that particular lawyer uh, the entire firm was all men and he told me that you should not even try to do litigation because you're going to have children one day. That was when I was starting my career and I was shocked. I didn't respond to that because I was, you know, was kind of, I was, I was, I was very surprised. I'm like, holy, it's, it's like 2000, whatever it was. I mean, I've only been practicing about four years so the fact that someone had the courage to say that, it was quite disrespectful. Um, I would go to court and I never faulted the judges for assuming I was a student because I was quite young. Um, and then once we cleared that up, it was, um, I was treated on equal par. Like I, I never experienced any discrimination from, from the judiciary. Um, none from my, my colleagues. It was just a very collegial bar. Um, but when I moved to Toronto, I can notice the differences right away. And it was very different because in the regions, there's more Indigenous representation within the communities. And when you move to Toronto, um, the first question you're asked is, where are you from? And I thought that was very interesting because nobody would ask me that until I moved to the city. 
And I never knew what the proper answer to that was because then I'd have to explain, you know, that I was indigenous. And what I thought was interesting in Toronto was that um, when I would explain that I was indigenous, the first response from the majority of lawyers would be, no, you're not because you're white, like you're, you're, you don't present as indigenous, your skin's too light. And so that was the first shock for me when I was working in Toronto is the other lawyers did not consider me to be indigenous because of the color of my skin. Despite the fact that I grew up on reserve, despite the fact that, you know, my family has a long history in our first nation. And um, I just thought that was very interesting in terms of um, experiences. A lot of times we navigate through this profession almost invisible. You know, I don't know if you have been, if this has ever happened to you, but I've been in a meeting with male lawyers. It's like, um, you know, oh, was you bringing coffee? <laughs> no, I've, face, yeah. I've been mistaken for the court reporter, the interpreter, and mm -hmm. not the lawyer. Yeah. Right? So yeah. many times. What happened is the lawyers who I was hanging around with on my floor, they would make fun of people like me. Like they would make fun of, um, they would, they would say stuff like, oh, like my indigenous client, um, I don't know how she ever lived. I don't know how my indigenous client ever went through that because my indigenous client has, you know, suicide addictions, um, you know, uh, assaults in their background. And they would sit and chat about it. Like it was, um, like it was funny. And I'm like, you're not understanding that I'm sitting here and I have that same background. They don't, they are so powerful and privileged that they're not taking into account. They think that everyone in their spheres are also from the same um, uh, cutting board. So I'm sitting there looking at them and I'm, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, if they ever knew anything about my history i don't like i i don't think they'd be my friends so again it's more cover up cover up mental health cover up but my family cover up my circumstances where i come from pretend that i'm a robot just like them um but but what it does is it ostracizes me from the group so that i don't want to hang out with these people so then once i'm once i'm isolating myself from the group then i don't have a team my then the team they don't they don't trust me they don't know what I'm up to right and it's all because they've assumed that uh, I guess I come from you know this this wonderful family that's always supported me which 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 unfortunately stuff has happened and I don't people have expectations when you come from a different culture and I think from my culture it was you know, she doesn't have anyone that's white collared. She doesn't come from money. She doesn't come this. So there's instances when I was referencing my parents' farm, et cetera. And um, someone actually said to me, um, weird, like they, they called it a flex, like that I was trying to prove a point or say that I'm from a rich background or I'm, and I was like, what? And I was like, and I, and I was, and I stunned. And they like, and this person was just, you know, I was speaking outside. They left. And I like, I, I actually went after them and I was like, Hey, did I say something wrong? Like, why, why did you get so offended? I was just talking in, in generic terms and they were like, no, no, um, it, it's a me issue, not a you issue. And I was like, wait, what? And I've been thinking, and I like, to this day, I don't know what their issue was, but all I could gather was, 
you know, this person comes from a rich background or they have money, they have all this. But when they saw that I had similar, um, you know, feats or my parents had similar things, they were like, oh, wait, no, that's not what we expected of you. This is weird. Now you're throwing it in our face and you're rubbing it. But it's like when you do it, it's okay. But when I do it, it's not okay because I'm not supposed to be like that or I'm not supposed to come from that type of um, background. And I, I think that was like a huge, another huge shocker. And I was like, I can't, I can't deal with this. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think at, at the time I didn't because I was afraid. I, I was like, oh, like, well, who do I, who do I speak to? What do I say? But I think when I eventually did, and it wasn't someone from the same firm, but um, they were kind of like, oh, maybe you're overthinking it. Maybe it's not this. And it's like, and, but then it's like, it comes down to the gaslighting, right? Because it's like, I remember this conversation exactly how it happened. But then when you say it, it's like, no, 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 that's not how it was framed. It was framed differently. And I was like, really? And then you start thinking to yourself, like, is that the case? Did that actually happen? And I think that was a huge, huge part for me. Because then I started like, and then eventually, to be quite honest, I started noting things down because I'm like, is this what's happening to me? And then and I speak to like other friends and depending on, and quite honestly, depending on what their culture was, they either understood what I was saying or they didn't understand what I was saying. And they were like, no, no, you're overthinking this. And the other one was like, I get what you're saying because that's exactly what happened to me or I have had this conversation too. And I'm like, oh, so it, I think it very, like it was very different. Um, and one of the advice as horrible as it is was um, from someone at, um, who's worked, who's senior to me at a different firm. And, and he essentially said to me, he's like, you should just put your head down and continue to work if you want to go up in the firm. And I was like, wow. And I was like, but that's how I guess people make it. And it's just, and I, and I was like, oh, maybe I should like think about that. And you start thinking, you're like, if I, if I want to improve and if I want to go further, I need to do that. Cause when I went into the law firm life, big law firm life, I was like, I'm going to, you know, stay here. I'm going to like stick to it. I'm going to become partner. This is what I really want to do. And then when I started seeing these things and I was like, I don't want to deal with this. And like, I understand like you have to stay. And people were telling me you have to stay to make that change. And I was like, but do I want to stay and make that change? Why is that responsibility on me? Like, I don't want to be dealing with that. Like spend my entire life trying to change a firm that's not wanting to change. It's really hard um, when when people aren't wanting to change. If everyone was wanting to change, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, let me help. But if no one wants to change, there's no point. It's like, you know, talking to a wall. You know, obviously we, we think about this idea of billable hours. We think about, you know, m- most things in life, right? And, and you can even do it like a very visible example, right? So a building, your law school building has a set of stairs to physically access that door. It's it's available for everyone to use, right? Look, we're making it equal access to everybody. We're not preventing anyone from walking through that door, but you are, right? If you're in a wheelchair and there is no ramp available, you can't get in, right? So we we think that just because we are presenting this the one option for everyone, we think that's that's equal, right? And for me, that it, it actually is a little bit meaningless, right? Because if if there are individuals who physically or mentally or or in any capacity financially can't access it does like we would not say we well you're not going to build that ramp we would never say that today right we 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 are not going to build that ramp for you to access that so why do we do it from a you know this you know billable hours perspective why do we because people don't even realize that you know especially you know, I, my parents were refugees to this country. So, you know, obviously they brought us, my brother and I along. And there's this mentality as an immigrant that you never, you, you just do what you're told, right? You, you just suck it up and do it. You, you don't ever, you know, ask for, you know, 
proper conditions for, you know, say employment or living or anything like that. You just take what you get and you're happy to get it. And so, you know, you think about, you know, the amount of extra hours my family had to do uh, to just, you know, educate themselves outside of the working hours, right? So it's like, you know, if we think about this billable hour structure, you don't know what people need to do outside of those hours. I um, often have a conversation with um, people that I mentor. And I say that within the law profession, you have to consider the various circles. We won't reach true um, reconciliation or even fairness until um, you look at each person's individual circle. So from my perspective, who do you invite into your home is my test. You have your work colleagues that you will go out for lunch with. Then you have, in terms of circles, they're on the outskirts. Then you have the people that you invite with you to meet your spouse or your family. They're your friends. But until you're willing to invite those people into your home, have a meal with them, there's no real reconciliation. Because if your circle, your inner circle around yourself is surrounded by people who are not diverse, um, then you are not promoting diversity within the profession. If on, on the opposite spectrum, you, you have a great amount of diversity within your life, then perhaps you're more inclined to sit down and have a conversation about how we can improve the profession and access to not only for lawyers, but also for the general public in terms of access to justice. Um, and just to give you an anecdote, I, I remember the time when I was called to the bar. Uh, I, you know, I left the ceremony. I was with my parents and my sisters and my nieces and my nephews. And I was walking down the street in downtown Toronto with my, you know, the robe and I was wearing my heels and the whole thing. It's looking, you know, I was looking good. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you were. <laughs> I was so proud because it had been so difficult for me to be called to the bar. Um, my personal uh, story is that, you know, I did the bar exams in 2009 after doing the equivalences. So I, you know, it took me two and a half years to do the equivalences after when I emigrated from England. And then, you know, I sat the bar exams, but I couldn't complete the article component because I couldn't find articles. And so my results expired and I had to start the whole thing all over again. And um, it took me, so they expired in 2012 and I started the process again in 2017, because to be honest with you, I was, I was completely, I was gutted. Yeah. And so I ended up going to Kenya and becoming a lawyer there before deciding, okay, I think I've made peace. <laughs> and started the whole process again. And I did, and, you know, I was finally called to the bar in 2018. Um, so when I was walking down the streets of Toronto, dressed like that, it was quite a, uh, it was a unique moment for me. And it's one that I will always remember because it was like, oh my God, I finally made it. And even my parents felt the same way. They were just overcome with emotions. And I came across, there was some black uh, kids um, that were just sitting in a corner, just chatting between themselves. And they saw me and they just went, oh my God, you know, and then they wanted to take pictures and everything. And in that moment, I realized, oh, wow, 
you know, these kids are not used to seeing a black lawyer. To them, this is new or to them, this is like a spectacle because they, in a good way, because they've never, they don't see that. And in that moment, I was like, oh my God, we really, there's so much that we need to do. Like we're not even there yet. And even when you look at the numbers, we aren't that many uh, practicing law in this province. I don't know what it's like in other provinces. So I'd like to see that. And yet we're overrepresented in jails. You know, we're overrepresented in the uh, welfare system. Um, so it would be good to see more Black people um, in those roles. Um, because, yeah, we, 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 we are part of this society. And so we should be able to. And, and it's not that we're, I don't, we're not, we're, you know, in terms of our intellect, we're no different no. from other people. No, 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 exactly. I mean, absolutely not. And you don't have less interest in law or in the legal profession or, uh, you know, it's not only a white male privilege who love the legal profession. <laughs> like there are many other people who love that. Hi, my name is Sophie Bourg. Hi, I'm Daphne Duvon. Hi, I'm Patricia Blockson. Hello, I am, uh, my name is Molina Buckley. And you have just heard from Back to Front, Angela Ogang, Amanda McBride, Vasu Sivaplan, Manru Guman, Andrea Menard, Kamaljit Lihal, Catherine Sainty, Gurpreet K. Gill, Samira Sereda, Christina Cook, and Prabrit Sanga. They are some of the many women lawyers we have spoken to over the last six months for this podcast series, marking 30 years since the release of the CBA Touchstones report. Hi, I'm Julia Tetro-Provencher. Welcome to episode 3, Intersectionality. In episodes 1 and 2, we got to know Sophie, Daphne, Pat and Melina very well. But there were other task force members. Here's WLF Secretary Angela Ogang again, explaining who they were and why their inclusion was so significant. You know, when they went in, they went in wanting to advance the, you know, like the opportunities that were available for women lawyers. But as soon as they started going to all these different um, universities to meet up with people, you know, because they had, you know, some sort of um, town halls in different places across the across the country. And as people came to them and started opening up about their issues, the things that they were going through, they realized that the, the problem was much, much bigger than they had actually initially thought. And that a lot of times, uh, People, you know, there's women, but then there's that issue of intersectionality as well. Um, there's the fact that, you know, some people um, will face barriers uh, because not just because they're women, but because they belong to a certain um, ethnic group or, you know, um, race or because of their sexual orientation. And those things came up, you know, were, became very obvious as they were writing the report. They also realized that the task force wasn't diverse, which made them at least, you know, try and make it as diverse as they could at the time by inviting, um, for example, Justice Corrine Sparks to join the, the task force and uh, um, uh, Sharon McIver as well, who is Indigenous. So Justice Sparks is uh, a Black woman. Um, and, and, and so that added a bit of 
spice to uh, to the work of because you know because of that little change, someone like me could see myself in that report, or someone like me could see that they made an effort to include me in their work. And uh, when I was listening to them uh, talk about that issue of intersectionality, um, I have to admit I uh, I had to go off camera and uh, I cried because I was just really overwhelmed. And, and you know, later I spoke to Kamel Jeet, who's the uh, the chair of the uh, Touchstone 2.0 committee. We talked about it, and she had the same reaction. And I think what we had in common was that idea that we were seen. And you can't imagine how powerful it is to make people feel seen. We continue now with more segments from the series of Fireside Chat we held in the spring and summer of 2023 with Pat, Daphne, Melina, and Sefi. But personally, I think that um, all the credit should be given to those women that has brought the issue Uh, to the task force because we were uh, we were we didn't realize the the privileges that we have as white women in the society and this is what this was way back in uh, well not way not that way back <laughs> that was back in 1990 <laughs> and uh, and you know we were intersectionality was not even a word at the time. It was, we were talking about double discrimination. That's what we were talking about. And we were talking only about two layers of discrimination, but for what I understand back then. Uh, um, so uh, it was, uh, but this is in all of those, uh, those are kind of sociological movement. You know, it's it was in the fabric of society. It was rising at the time. Uh, thanks God, everybody on the task force was open-minded. I think that was we had to be feminist and open-minded to uh, to sit on the task force. And we soon came to realize also that there's no way we can do justice to the reality of what then we call double discrimination within the mandate of the task force. It was a much bigger issue. And that's why one of the recommendations was to have another task force uh, on racism in the profession. Uh, because we couldn't, uh, we have, we became aware of it and we, we tried to integrate it in our work and to, to see where there might be issues of double discrimination adding Uh, which is all across the board, basically. Uh, but to, and the reaction actually to, and I think, and I may be wrong, but the reaction was even stronger against when we say that there is racism in the profession. It was even stronger than when we say there is sexism in the profession. That was kind of the, the, the Venetian sea walls rising in front of the lagoon, uh, say, no, not here, not here. Uh, uh, it's, and, uh, and I remember at one of the, the, one of the session at the council, when they say there's no racism in the profession, it's not true. And uh, we, somebody raised and say, well, look around the room. There was 
only white person and a majority of white men. Uh, the proof is in the pudding, as they say in English. When we did our first uh, conference, which was October, right? It was, I think it was within the first 10 months of the task force uh, being implemented. And we invited, invited many, many different groups to that conference. Mm -hmm. And they said, they said so clearly to us that you need to, um, to look at intersectionality and you need to broaden the scope of who's on this task force because you don't represent me, right? There's, there's no women of color on this. Uh, there's no Aboriginal women, there's no disabled women. And we really had to regroup and say, you're right, that we have to talk about all women and women aren't just, you know, white, uh, white women. We need to talk about all women uh, when we look at this report and look at all forms of discrimination. And uh, it, was an, it was a really important moment for us. And um, I think it was really critical to the credibility of our task force that we were able to take that feedback and, and, and say that, that you're right, you're absolutely right. And we need to expand the scope of our work, our inquiry and the, the depth of the people that are working on this task force, not just the task force itself, but also our provincial working groups. But it was it was so stimulating when we got together, and particularly when uh, Judge Connie Sparks came and when Sharon started coming. Sharon would come and tell us that she had been a bit late because uh, she was out meeting her spirit animal. You know, like she was astonishing to to even know. I, I knew zero members of any Aboriginal uh, community at the time I, I met some at my law school, but but Sharon particularly, Dr. McIver. And uh, uh, so when they came, it was it really broke it open and we had a whole other analysis. So it was it was phenomenally exciting. It really was. And Melina and the staff, the, the work and the scholarship they put into it and the, the, the statistical stuff they got for us and you know, it was it was very stimulating. And I think generally, I'm in fact, always in my recollection, the discussions were very respectful. The period of time for writing the report was quite short. So I feel like, Daphne, I agree 100% that there was lots of exchange of ideas and that when Connie and Sharon joined the table, we kind of, it was really a great opportunity to revisit and open up some of that, and really, I, I agree with all the comments there. I feel like it expanded the discussion in a very important way and that the report would not have been the same without it. We had, of course, been consulting with people, so we'd heard it, we'd heard some stories, very different having someone at the table, as we all know, who who is there, particularly Connie, I have to say, who was the one who was the most able to kind of sit right across from Bertha and kind of go, well, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you, but, you know, I have another perspective. Like, you know, there was something about that dynamic. It wasn't a tension, but it was a dynamic. And there was a level of judicial respect there that was quite interesting uh, to me as sort of the, um, you know, the person who was more recording the discussion. And then, I do recall actually that the one meeting where we had some of the best conversations was actually one where Bertha wasn't able to attend. And my recollection is that everybody talked a lot more <laughs> at that meeting. And there was like, because I think naturally there was, we really would prefer to listen to Bertha, you know, because she, she just 
had so much to say and had such a beautiful way of expressing herself. So I did feel like it took quite a long time to get past that. And then we had that one meeting, I remember it was in March of 93. So it was when we were uh, talking about the outline for the report. And you know, we already knew that there were going to be chapters and everybody had responsibility for the chapter. And I had done you know, some work for the preliminary part that Daphne talked about, the more theoretical or or the framing kind of um, sections. But it was there that we really started to wrestle, I think, with um, with some of what the content would be ultimately. And then we had a series of meetings, uh, three months, May, June, and July, where we were actually looking at drafts. And 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 definitely, Daphne, you're up, you know, my recollection is the same as yours, where you know, once we had the text in front of us and we're trying to figure out you know what kind of response and how should we couch it in a way that was strong enough to make people act, but not so strong that it um created a backlash, although of course we couldn't completely avoid that. And that's okay, I think, because you know, you can write a report that's very easy, kind of bland. And it would have landed and people were going, great, we can just, you know, put up our hands today about that. But so I think we were really, the mood of that room, as I recall, was like taking us just to the edge. Like, let's go as far as we can. We're not going to have another task force report like this. We are recommending that there be a task force specifically about systemic racism. But but we need, let's, let's move all of the um, mileposts as far as we can with this report and definitely this was a very brave task force. There was not a voice on it that was against that. It was real unanimity about that. And the discussion, as I recall, was more about nuance and people saying, well, you know, I feel like this will work and this won't and and so on. And, you know, and then at one meeting, Bertha came in with a few specific recommendations about the duty to accommodate. I may have said this at the first, during our first call, I can't remember now, but fully written out. So there was that process, right? Like where it just came directly from her. And, you know, we, those ended up obviously being ones that uh, attracted lots of attention because they tied the duty to accommodate with the idea of reducing billable hour targets um, as being one way to accommodate people with parental responsibilities in particular, particularly women with parental responsibilities, but uh, tied into that or family responsibility, but tied into that idea. And so that was kind of a late addition that really energized our discussions, I would say. And yes, I can tell you what we talked about at every meeting, I remember. <laughs> I probably I have the agenda. A, I probably have the agenda somewhere. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Uh, one thing for me that was also really a changer is the issue of uh, racism and homophobia. Back then, uh, gay lawyers didn't have a place at the CBA and even less in the profession. Uh, it was still the time where for uh, gay lawyers or lesbian lawyers, they were not talking about their spouse. Uh, they were always coming along and so on. And uh, racism, was it was the same thing. It was barely, it was a, mostly a white male association that's that's what it was and uh the presence of uh Connie spark 
uh, was very revealing. And, uh, you know, after the meeting we had, yes, with I think it was the Association of Black Women Lawyers in Toronto. Um, and, you know, you, you, you're so focused back then, was very much focused on the situation of women in the profession. But the issue of how do we treat all forms of inequality? We were just talking about double inequality. That was the vocabulary at the time, and that was very revolutionary. Now you talk about double equality, double discrimination, and it kind of dates you. <laughs> You're talking about your age then when you use that kind of vocabulary. So, uh, but it's it was and the the place of this uh, intersectionality that was not a word invented at the time. How does that will play out into uh, into the future? How do we integrate that? And uh, I remember very vividly that what the task force made me realize is that racism for, was way worse than sexism. Uh, and for me, I thought that because we're uh, you know there's women and they're men, so that's the big distinction. I have never realized it. And uh, and that create kind of a situation of uh, okay, so how do we integrate? Where does that fit? Uh, how can I defend women issue if I don't think at the same time as racism issue as homophobic issue and so on? So that was uh, I think that those those issues also as uh, shaken the the, the kind of the, temp, the the temple. Do we say that in English? I can say that in English. So the expression, no, you can understand. Okay, no, so, no, okay. Forget about that expression. That does. Same French, same French. The same thing with the the, the situation of Aboriginal people. Uh, and I remember when uh, when Sharon uh, got on the task force, uh, we have to get uh, educated about how do we how can we talk to each other how do we communicate uh, how do we listen to each other because i remember that one of the one thing that struck me very much from the beginning is what a powerful listener berta wilson was uh, she was always sitting of course at the end of the table and she has this black uh, little uh, cahier uh, you know the one that you buy in the Chinatown that are black cover with red corners and you have a little Chinese uh, at the back of it, at the bottom of every pages. And she was taking notes like that. That's what, what she was taking notes. And contrary to uh, to most of the member of the task force, she was not interrupting. She was never interrupting anybody. Uh, well, uh, sometimes, you know, it can be a little bit not often. Usually, we listen to them. Um, so we learn. We learn to listen to each. Well, I learned to listen to each other. Although they were lucky because since I was not speaking very good English, uh, I was a little bit more shy to intervene. <laughs> but that was also uh, part of what changed the reflection, and certainly my reflection on uh, on those issues. Yeah, I want to follow up on that, Sophie, because I think that was really such an important um, a consequence and natural step from the task force is that we started that that having um, the intersectionality that we did opened the door for a more fulsome discussion about 
all forms of exclusion that existed in the profession. And so the CBA, I mean, I have to say uh, big kudos to the CBA uh, in moving all of those issues forward and making sure that there were standing committees and forums to have this discussion on an ongoing basis. And I think that um, I think that, that the task force was the seed that planted a big mighty oak tree where we could have these big important discussions in a safe way, uh, in a supported environment. Uh, and I, I'm really happy that that was one of the things that happened because I don't, it didn't, it didn't, it, it did kind of naturally evolve, but, um, but we had to think about it, right? We had to think about it and we had to talk about it. And it was, um, you know, it was a revelation to me uh, to, to start thinking more in that direction. And it's changed the way I think about discrimination, about systemic discrimination, about the layers of discrimination. Uh, and that has impacted, uh, that has had a, a, a big impact uh, for sure on, on my worldview. Um, I think, it, I don't wanna just always be blowing the horn of the Bar Association beyond the great initiative that they started, but national organizations such as that are, are quite, quick to understand intersectionality uh, just in how they have to run themselves. You know, the, there's the constitution, there's, there's private practice lawyers, there's, we would sit at a meeting mostly of, of senior private practice lawyers. It was often hard to hear the public lawyers saying that that's not going to help us at all. Those initiatives aren't going to help us. We're working for the government as lawyers, the military lawyers, the, the, um, Francophone lawyers who practice in English Commonwealth jurisdictions, you know, the or, or mixed jurisdictions like New Brunswick. I mean, they had a whole other set of interests. And I, I make this sort of symbolic sort of graph here with my hands, because we're that is something that we were, I think we were able to pick up pretty quickly. And even it was only within a month or two of that, I as I recall, that the uh young women lawyers who were lesbians were coming forward you know, very quietly, hesitantly at a young women's lawyers conference in Banff. They'd invited Bertha. I don't think any of the rest of us were there. Maybe you were, Pat, but you were there. And and it was, it was oh, shoot, uh, sexual orientation. We missed that one for a year or whatever. And, and, but it was, we just had to hear about it and we were on it. And the stories of young women who couldn't bring their partner to the firm dance or whatever was, was, you know, and that would be absolutely, I'd be out of there if I had to disclose who I loved. And, and, but I think we, we did have a tendency to pick these things up and go with them because that's how we think as lawyers to, to a great degree. It was so basic, right? It was like multiple discrimination, double discrimination. Like we were really struggling with those, those words and uh, even having them in the, uh, in the original mandate of the task force, that was like the last sub issue of what should be looked at. And I, I remember there was quite a bit of discussion about, you know, why, why should you be looking at that? It's just women. And we're like, no, women. <laughs> so we were, we didn't have, I agree with you, Pat, we didn't have the language really, at least, I mean, not that it wasn't being developed um, in the feminist movement, but, but certainly uh, it was, you know, at the at the forefront of some of those ideas, and there was definitely that was the area I would say. Well, one of the areas 
where there was the most resistance was like we talked about lesbians, right? And we talked about uh, women of color and so on. And every single, we, we say that so many times in the report and that was a deliberate choice to, rather than saying women, to, to, um, to name those various intersecting ways that uh, women and trans people, uh, which of course was not on our radar at all, I would say at that time, you know, uh, what their experience is. And we tried to get at the idea of how much, uh, how bigger, how much bigger the barriers were for women who are further away from the white middle-class male norm of what a lawyer was, right? That was the norm, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, when I was in law school in the early 80s, uh, absolutely, or mid-80s, that uh, absolutely was. And there was a tolerance, there was barely, you know, barely a, a tolerance in some ways for, for um for women, there was active defacement of any like women in the law activities at the law school and so on. And when when the task force met, especially with younger lawyers and with students in particular, I'm thinking of those wonderful, powerful, strong uh, black women lawyers in Toronto that we met with, uh, you know, who really made an impact on the work of the task force, I would say. And they, um, you know, they brought this dimension, like it's not a glass ceiling, it's a brick wall. Right. Um, which I think, you know, some uh, women, depending on where they practice and the kind of community they're in, that would be their experience regardless of their color. But the, the question, there was no doubt, uh, and nobody really needed to be convinced for very far about how much more difficult it was uh, for women who, who came from that were not recognizable within that norm um, to, to break into the practice. Right? And that's why I think the task force report actually pays quite a bit of attention into the entry, right? It's kind of like we pay a lot of attention into the barriers to entry and the barriers to advancement. And then a little bit about the everyday kind of difficulties that, that, that women face in different, in different uh, ways. Well, that's beautiful because you all seem to remember like the discussions and how strong it was. So I think that's very, very beautiful to hear. You know, when you say, uh, Melina, you, you went to the edge, you didn't want to be too much, but you also wanted to have a real impact. And I think it clearly did. And just the fact that now it's 30 years from now and we talk about it and it's still so relevant. Um, and, and, and you mentioned, uh, Patricia, you said it's uh, like you planted the seed and became an oak. Now I kind of feel like we have a forest. Amanda. Andrea. Cecilia Johnson. Samira Sarita. Judge Connie Sparks. And you say, oh, you have the telephone from... President Chapman, President Chapman, who's that? Bus is civil poll. The other person I want to give some credit to is Sheila Martin. Jermaine Greer. Bonjour, Amin. Indigenous Christina Cook. And Donji Vasconi Zippy. Hello, my name is Christina Cook, and I'm from Broken Head Ojibwe Nation. So I'm Melina Buckley. I'm a retired lawyer and legal policy consultant. I'm Gerpreet Corgill. I also go by Gigi. I was called in May of 2021. Hi, I'm Patricia Bloxham. Uh, I graduated uh, from law school in 1982 and was called to the bar in 1983. Well, I'll jump in. Um, my name is Angela Ogang. I am the current secretary of the Women Lawyers Forum. So I'm Daphne Dumont. Uh, so I'm also a, a future retired family lawyer. Um, I've just turned 70. I've been... Uh, 
a small firm, moved to a larger firm now. Well, so my name is Prampreet Sanga. I am uh, an immigration lawyer. Um, been practicing. I got called in December 2019. Manu Lee Hall. Rebecca Brown. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I'm uh, Sophie Burke, as you know, uh, future retired judge. Linda silver and Judith Udart. But if we take w- one segment just to name every woman that has participated to the task force effort, Throughout Canada, you have all those provincial committees, all those that has written paper, papers that were commissioned. Uh, it will take such a long time, but you know we're here, kind of the original member of the the task force. But in my opinion, I just I have the, I have the fun part of the task force, uh, being in the receiving end of it, you know. But I, we have all those women that have put so much effort. I, I've never done the list, but it will be a very very long list. Uh, it will be. It will be a that, very that I've got involved. You know, it's really a collective effort. Um, and you know what? There were some men that got involved too. It wasn't just yes, women. Absolutely. Men. There were really a lot of men that uh, that worked hard. Uh, they maybe sat on uh, provincial working groups, uh, or there were men on the task force. Uh, Alex Robertson and, yeah. um, and uh, John Hagen. John Hagen. Yeah. John Hagen. Yeah. <laughs> I never sensed an atom of resistance in him to what. Oh, no, he was the research he was doing. I think he he worked a lot on this, how the statistical work would come. Yes. Alex Robertson, which I think was from BC, wasn't he? Um, He was he was put in more as a senior statesman, I think, to give credibility to our otherwise uh, pretty feminist group. But I'm not scientific brain. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I mean I Alex like he he requires some educating, let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> and we all need educating all throughout our lives. Thank you so much for listening to us. And thank you to all of the women who have shared their time, insight, and experiences with us. We will be releasing some of the complete in-depth interviews we conducted as episodes in their own rights as the year goes on. In our next and final episode with Melina, Sophie, Pat and Daphne, we will be adding still more diverse women lawyers to the podcast and asking the question, where would we like to see the profession in another 30 years time in terms of equity, diversity and inclusion? Please feel free to reach out to us anytime at podcast at cba.org. I'm Julia Tetro-Provencher and this is The Every Lawyer. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Thank you for the opportunity to even share. I think that's uh, that's amazing.